Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue, and welcome back to Voices of the Valley. We have another uh, terrific guest, Josh Ruiz, who is the Senior Director of Ag Technology and Innovation. Josh, welcome. And uh, I think you recognize my uh, faithful partner, Candace Wilson. Candace, hello. Hi. And, How are uh, you today, Josh? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yo, you're welcome. Well, this will be fun because all of us know each other pretty well, and we've worked together. And uh, so... Uh, we're looking forward to this conversation. You know, Josh, it so happened we had an interesting conversation last night, which we'll talk about, but we're going to out you as a regular listener of the podcast, which has I am. no bearing on our reason for asking you to join us for this episode. Completely independent. But as a regular listener, you know, the first thing we like to do is ask our guests to uh, tell us about themselves, their career journey to what they're doing today and then what they're doing today. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up the Senior Director of Ag Technology and Innovation. Sure, yeah. No, and, and I, I'll be honest, I'm a proud listener. I travel up and down the road a lot, around the country a lot at this point. And uh, I truly enjoy listening to the guests that you guys have on and the conversations you guys have. You guys are talking about a lot of good things. And uh, I think it's important these conversations are being had. So definitely a proud listener. Uh, yeah, so I was, I was born, uh, born and raised in Salinas. And uh, my family had nothing to do with agriculture. I tell people all the time, uh, farming started and stopped at the grocery store for my family. And um, one day, just before high school, I decided, you know, I better go educate myself on what's going on around me. And uh, I drove out to the nearest farm, knowing no different, and uh, asked the farmer if I could just ride around with him. I didn't want any money. I just wanted to ride around and educate myself on what was happening. And uh, after a week of riding around with him, uh, fell in love with farming and thought, you know, this is a good, honest way to make a living. So this is what I want to do. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world at this point. Uh, I was meant to be a farmer and be in the ag business. And I love it. Uh, went off to school, Cal Poly, and came back and uh, started uh, in the fresh vegetable business here in uh, in the Salinas Valley and have been doing it ever since. Well, you know, one of the things I like about that story is, you know, that attitude of I want to know what's going on around me. I think you've, as I've known you over the years, you've really carried that into how you've taken a look at this whole area of technology and innovation. And I want to get into that a little bit, but talk a little bit about what you're doing at Duda and, and then just your experience with ag tech and innovation. Because as I say, that curiosity seems to have really driven your interest in innovation and technology and really taking the time to look, really look at everything. As I often tell people, well, if you can get to Josh Ruiz, He's seen everything. And, uh, but, you know, you got to be willing to do that. So now yeah. talk about that and what you're doing. Sure. No, I, I came back from school uh, and came into the ag business. And, you know, I started learning from a lot of the old timers, we'll call them, who have become some of my greatest mentors and friends over the years. But what I quickly learned was they were just doing things that had been done year over year over year and generation after generation. And, I'm a Nintendo kid. I was born and raised with a Nintendo in my hand. And, you know, I was the start of that computer generation, if you were. And um, 
people would tell me, well, this is just the way it's always been done. And that would seem like a very strange response to me. I didn't understand that. And I am a very inquisitive type person. I want to know what's behind the curtain or why does this happen or why does this go that way or whatever. And uh, because of that, over the years, I have been willing to look at a lot of different things and ask a lot of different questions. And, and I have um, just had an interest in doing things differently. Can it be done better? Can we build a better mousetrap? Can we build a better plant or a better tractor or whatever? And um, I've been fortunate to uh, ask a lot of questions and, and stumble my way through a lot of different technologies and, and innovations over the years. And um, that has led me to where I'm at today with Duda. And Duda has brought me here to join their team to be, you know, a leader or, or um, the person who gathers all the technologies and brings Duda into that next generation so that we can be better farmers, better stewards of our resources. And Duda is about to celebrate its 100th anniversary of being in business. And they recognize if we don't innovate and if we don't do some of these things, they won't be here for another 100 years. So the point is, let's see how we can become better and, and make it another 100 years after this. I love that. I am curious, can you highlight some of, so over the course of your career, you've had your hands in all kinds of exciting innovation projects. What are some of the projects that you've been a part of that you feel most proud of? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of different things. One was uh, a broccoli harvester that my team and I invented, basically, and um, we came up with it with parts and pieces from all kinds of different other industries. It was never meant to harvest broccoli, but my team and I saw a way to put the parts and pieces together and create that harvester, which I'm still very proud of to this day. And uh, we were able to actually harvest some other crops with the two, which was interesting. So that's one I'm really proud of. And then the other you know, thing is technology is not always, I've mentioned this to both of you guys over the years, and technology is not just about robots and machines and tractors all the time, but sometimes it's about being smarter and analyzing data and things like that. And my team and I have in the past have done a lot of deep dive into data and just take away the gut feeling that farming comes naturally in farming. You know, we tend to run with our guts a lot in farming as an industry. And my team and I have been uh, able to find ways to analyze the data, collect data that we weren't collecting before and truly make some decisions that are data-driven, not gut-driven, which is another thing I'm really proud of. You know, so those are a couple different things I've been involved in. Well, you know, one of my favorite stories is I want to pick up on, on the broccoli and to the degree you can talk about this, but uh, share the story of how you uh, took a look at the whole broccoli deal and said, you know, there there may be, I'm not sure you knew it at the time, though I'm guessing you did, like, hey, we may need to make a an agronomic play here. You know, this may not be a matter of technology. It may be a matter of looking at, at seed varieties and and that whole story, because I think it's an important one. One, I think it speaks to, you, you know, that curiosity, inquisitiveness we talked about and and you like to try things. But I think the other thing is, and I'll ask you to comment after you tell the story, when it comes to automation, and you've looked at everything that's out there, you know, are we still overly preoccupied with the technology? And do there need to be more commitments, you know, to agronomics? You know, do we need to be looking more seriously at orchard design and that type of thing? But start with the broccoli story. Yeah, absolutely. So I was tasked with, can we build a broccoli harvester? And um, I'm not an engineer. I'm not really even a mechanic. I don't even change the oil on my car. That's not my forte. But I was looking at equipment and nothing I could see out there would even remotely come close to fitting what we did on the farm. And uh, one day it dawned on me that, well, why do we need to keep the farm the same? We don't. So I was able to go back and look at my farming practices 
and say, well, what can I do with equipment? What is the closest thing I can come up with equipment-wise today? And where's our technology at today? And uh, I was able to go back and modify my farming practices to fit the technology that I had available to me or that I thought was best at the time. And so broccoli today, uh, traditionally in California, is grown two lines on a 40-inch bed top. And uh, your plants are somewhere around six or eight inches apart. But trying to get equipment that fits in that tight that could harvest those two lines, I could not do. It just was too much of a challenge for me and my team, and we couldn't figure it out. So what we did was we took that two lines and we put it down to one line. And we said, we're just going to run one line down the center of the bed. And we're basically going to do that just so we can get our machine running because we want a proof of concept that the machine will work. Well, what we ended up finding out was as we put the broccoli on a single line down the bed and we spaced it out in order to make the machine work, we gave the broccoli more light, more air, more water, more fertilizer. It became a happier plant and ultimately produced more pounds. So now I've got less plants in the field. I'm farming different than I've ever farmed before. And I've got a machine that's harvesting the product for me and my yields are going up. So cost is coming down. And so this was, um, I'm not going to lie, I didn't have this vision. My vision was, I just want a broccoli harvester and I got to do whatever it takes to get there. And the benefits came afterwards. I was shocked that yield went up even though our plant population went down. And that was, uh, I think that was a a good thing for me to learn and realize that you don't know what you don't know. I I tell people that all the time. You simply don't know what you don't know. So you got to be willing to take a chance and shoot for it. And you might not, you might miss, but that's okay. You might learn something in the meantime too. Well, and I always like the the part of the story where you uh, kind of salvaged a variety of uh, broccoli that didn't look like it was going to make it to market. And lo and behold, that ended up with becoming the high-rise broccoli, which also provided some uniformity, if, if I remember the story correctly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Seminus, Monsanto, they were working on these uh, broccolis that were extruded out of the canopy for mechanical harvest. And I started with those varieties, even though they weren't really promoting them at the time. But what I saw was the uniformity, exactly to your point. And I thought, well, uniformity is just a step forward. It's not the end step, but it's a step forward. And that'll help out with my automation. In the end, it did. And uh, we, you know, it was a combination of varieties, changing our farming and the harvest equipment that we were able to come up with a winning combination. But it takes all those different pieces. And I talk about this all the time with people that there's no one silver bullet that's just going to plug right in and work perfectly. I think as an industry, we have to be well aware that genetics play a role, farming plays a role, equipment plays a role, data plays a role. We have to be willing to look at the whole picture as to get to the end result. It's such a great example of what you said where, you know, farmers in general go with their gut or what they know. And then this broccoli example of the learnings of as you started spacing things out and yield and stuff going up, like it seemed counterintuitive to how you manage the farm. So some nice aha moments there. Yes. As you have moved into your role and focused more um, on new technologies at Duda, what are some of the big opportunities that you see and you know what how are you prioritizing your work today? Yeah, so I think there's two things and I've mentioned this a couple of times kind of already, but for me data on the farm is the new frontier. Uh, it's not really the new frontier, but it's the new frontier. That's how I, I know how to say it at this point, but we need to collect the data and we need to start analyzing data. And so that's one of my big focuses. Let's take the gut and utilize the gut feel that we all have after doing this for 20, 30 years. But that gut only gets you so far. And then let's take the data to, to, to get it over the finish line, so to speak. 
So data collection, what data do we need? How do we analyze it? What do we do about it? That's a real big focus of mine. And then the other thing right now that I'm really focused on is farming, especially in California, has to change. Inevitably, it's going to change. Not to get political, but just because of in California, things are changing the rules and laws around labor and chemistries and water, all this kinds of stuff. So one of my focuses is how do I produce a stronger, healthier plant that can resist disease and pests on its own? So I don't necessarily need as much input. I'm convinced that we can produce healthier, stronger plants. I was just telling somebody today, as farmers were trained to look at a plant and see a green lettuce or a green romaine and say, aha, healthy plant. But just because it's dark and green on the outside doesn't mean it's biologically healthy on the inside and can resist disease and pests. So we need to stop looking at the outside and start working on the inside. And that's going to lead to better farming practices. And we're not going to need the tools that they're taking away from us in my mind eventually. Josh, have you, do you remember those commercials where there's some beautiful lady that steps out of, you know, a Rolls Royce of some sort, she's wearing a fabulous dress and everything looks great. And then it puts her cholesterol number across the screen. (laughs) It's kind of just what you described. Like the lettuce looks great, but really on the inside, not so good. No. And and I, I think it's really true that How can you expect a plant that's unhealthy on the inside? We're the same way. If you're unhealthy on the inside, you can't resist the flu or COVID or whatever you want to talk about, right? So a plant is no different. Totally. Absolutely. How are you doing that? What are the processes? How are you going about making a stronger, healthier plant? So the answer is, I don't know. I'm just just experimenting. Like I have done my whole life. I just start asking questions of a lot of people. I start just trialing things. I'll be honest, I'm doing things that I I send in tissue samples to a lab, I get back a lab result, and I'm not quite sure what it means or what I'm going to do with it yet, but at least I have some data in front of me and I can start putting pieces together. And so the answer is, I don't have a good answer yet. I don't think the industry knows yet how to be better farmers in this sense. I think it's just a lot of trial and error and learn by doing sampling of tissues, water, soil, experimenting with biological controls and non-biological controls and and just trying to come up with a plan. You know, I think you're on to something really important, as you know, and we're glad you're going to join us at the Salinas Biological Summit in in June. But, uh, you know, we had the conversation uh, because you've been involved in the group that's been looking at INSV with lettuce and, you know, and we'll ask you for an update on that. But you talked about, you know, you were looking at some biologicals, uh, I think it was last season, and you said, I noticed that the plants seem healthier on the front end. And it's interesting, biologicals is such a broad category, but it does seem to me, and I'll ask you how you would look at it, how you think about farming, you know, as you, you know, begin to integrate biologicals with synthetics, I'm not hearing the biologicals necessarily say either or so much as more of an integration. Now we'll, we'll see how all that plays out from a regulatory and a societal standpoint, but it sure seems like a, Farming becomes a lot more like, I mean, I think it's always got this element to it. It's like playing golf and, you you know, you got to play the win, so to speak, in terms of how you're going to hit a shot and that type of thing. But you really uh, can't go to sleep while you're farming in the world that's coming, I think. You know, it kind of vacillates between art and the science, particularly as you have to look at more materials and that sort of thing. And I like what you said, you know, you, you just try stuff. But, you know, it's going to be a big challenge, it would seem. 
It's going to be a huge challenge, number one. But number two, let me just start with, if we don't start now, my fear is that California agriculture is going to drastically change in the future and we're not going to be prepared. Uh, So we need to start now to be prepared. And that's where I'm at. I want to get ahead of it instead of being reactive. I want to be proactive. But going back to biologicals and conventional chemistry, if you will, I agree. It's not an either or. They're going to go hand in hand. Plants need nitrogen. But if you don't have a good biological environment in your soil, your plant cannot take up the nitrogen you give it efficiently and effectively. Therefore, you have to give it more than it actually needs. So if we get the environment right, if we get the biological bacteria right in the soil, in the root zone, we can put half as much nitrogen in the soil because the plant's going to utilize everything we put in the soil and we're not going to have to worry about leaching into water and things like that. Again, I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm convinced that's where we're headed. And it's not an either or. We're going to have to do these things in combination with one another. You talked about how you're doing the analysis yourself, sending it off to labs and stuff. Are there other companies or any like emerging service providers that will do that sort of thing for you? Absolutely. And by no means do I want to make it sound like I'm doing it myself. I am working with a lot of different people. And there's a lot of people out there who are just on the tip of this as well. There's different labs. I'm working with two different labs right now, one local to California and one in the Midwest. And why? Just because I want different sets of eyes and different opinions. I want to see what each one brings differently to the conversation. And they're already starting to, they're, they're going down similar paths, but they're already deviating a little bit, which is interesting. So again, I don't think anybody has a playbook, but there's definitely a lot of people out there who are, are looking at this. You guys have had lots of guests on. One of the last podcasts I just listened to was talking about biologicals and things. And so, yes, there are beginning to emerge some services out there, labs and people to do this kind of stuff. And I'm excited about that. I feel like our little fresh vegetable world in California is a little lagging on compared to some of the other you know, trees and nuts and Midwest grains and things like that. But uh, they're starting to come about. Yeah, for sure. That's helpful. Yeah. Josh, when you talk about data, you know, and another conversation I recall having, you know, because, uh, you know, I consider you one of the leaders of the pack and a pretty smart guy. And you've talked about, I've got more data than I've ever had before, but I don't know what to do with it. And I'm kind of like, how can you not know what to do with it? You're, I mean, you've got more rather than less. But the other thing is, you know, kind of the follow-up of that that question is, we hear everyone say data, and I know it can vary by crop and situation, but what kind of data are you fundamentally looking for? I mean, I know yields, I mean, is it weather? What data is the most important to you? I think that's the million-dollar question, and it all depends on your business, right? So, yeah, I remember having a conversation about having more data than I know what to do with, and I think a lot of farms do, a lot of agricultural entities do have a lot of data. It's what data matters and what data can make a difference. That's the big question. And each person, each entity has to dive into them, you know, their data and and identify what's going to make a difference in their deal, in their business. And when I say I don't know what to do with it all, I really don't. We think we know, but we don't always know. Like I just had a conversation today and I was asking the lab I'm working with, how do I know if I'm watering too much and causing stress to the plant. Oh, for doing this for 20 years, how to water, at least I think I do. But then am I causing stress to the plant and therefore the plant is susceptible to you know insect pressure? And he brought up evapotranspiration measurements. And I said, well, I've never looked at that before. I've got the data. It's sitting in my, in my weather station and on my internet. I've got years of it, but I've never messed with it. I've never looked at it. I've never done anything with it until today when he says, well, 
here's a formula I can give you and you can start looking at your evapotranspiration and your hours of water and make a correlation to them. And so that's the kind of stuff that I think a lot of people have data, but don't know what to do with it or, or don't even realize they have that data. I've got weather station out here, just like a lot of people have weather stations out here and it must collect 50 different points of weather data. And I, I use one, is it going to rain or not going to rain? And the rest, I don't really know what to do with, or, or I haven't really dove into it. So I, again, I think everybody needs to start spending more time thinking about those things because they will lead to better farming practices, in my opinion. And that's what I'm trying to do. And what you said really made sense to me. It starts with a question of what problem are you starting to solve? Because, you know, otherwise it does. It's all just numbers and columns and rows on a spreadsheet and stuff. But until you know, what is the question? What is the problem I'm trying to solve? Then you don't know where to begin. It's like a needle in a haystack. And I think you're absolutely right. And when you asked the question a little bit ago about service providers, they might not know either. But if you just start talking to one another, you'll volley the ball back and forth and you'll figure it out. And that's the fun part for me. I had a two-hour conversation with the lab this morning, a representative from the lab, and we talked about all kinds of different things from compost to water to this and that. And the next thing you know, we came up with two things that we really both agree on and pinpoint, okay, we're going to go start working on this. We talked about 30 different things, but two of them really came out of you know that conversation. And I think that's what people need to do is ask questions, call these service providers, call their neighbor, whoever go down to the tech center, start asking these tech companies, what problem do you think you have? Tell them, and then the conversations will just come about it. It's worked for me anyways. <laughs> yeah. I'm also curious about, we've we've had numerous representatives from different venture capital groups, and they talk a lot about the systems and the data and data platforms being able to talk to each other. How big of a struggle or hurdle are we facing in, you have lots of data and lots of different formats. What kind of progress are you seeing in bringing data into a more compatible sort of platform where they can speak to each other? How big of a hurdle is this challenge for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I've heard uh, you ask that question and, and a lot of your previous guests have talked about this. And at first, I didn't think it was quite a problem. I, I kept listening to the podcast thinking, man, I don't really have that struggle. But Lately, I have had that struggle, so I have to take back my, my thoughts back then. So we have tractors that don't talk to each other. I'm trying to work on some autonomy for tractors, but John Deere and New Holland and, and Kubota don't, you got to have different programs for all of them. So it is becoming an issue. I guess I didn't realize it until recently because of the things I was doing. I really didn't need that interaction. But um, even here at Duda, one of our systems, we have a Microsoft Power BI system, which is a wonderful system, but trying to get it to talk to the stuff that's going on outside is sometimes a challenge as well. So yeah, I think it's a, that's a real problem. I think there's some people out there who are, are handling it pretty well, uh, you know, creating some solutions. So it's a bigger problem than I maybe had given it credit earlier in the past, but it is a problem. Josh, uh, you know, we've talked about your, you know, inquisitive nature and you know that extends even beyond uh, your day job the other one of the other things i'm really kind of intrigued by i feel like you're an ag renaissance man <laughs> you, you know uh, it isn't as if you don't get enough of it on your day job then you go home and you've got your own lemons and your own wine and i think the lemon deal is interesting though i've learned a little bit in recent years you know there's actually a monterey variety and 
you know, I think the thinking was Monterey County wasn't necessarily a hospitable growing spot for it, but it turns out, yes, it is. So talk about your uh, forays into uh, fruit and wine. Yeah. And both of those came from, honest to goodness, from asking questions. I got in the wine business because I started drinking wine and I taste blueberry or raspberry or whatever I taste. And I would just want to know how they did it. I thought they were squeezing wine grapes and blueberries together. I had no idea. And uh, here we are 12 years later and I have a, a winery and a wine club and the whole nine yards. And I love drinking wine. But the point was, I was just started by asking the question, how does that work? I want to learn how to make wine and um, fell in love with it, to be quite frank. I love the process of making wine. You get to dive into all the little nuances, which I love. And the lemon's the same thing. Somebody told me you can't grow lemons in Monterey County. And I said, why not? Sounds, you can grow them anywhere. Surely we can grow them here. And so, yeah, started uh, planting uh, some lemons and um, turned into not only can you plant them here, but they thrive here. And unlike a lot of other regions, you know, in the central part of California, they do different things here. They set blooms different times. They set multiple blooms. I mean, it's a whole different uh, world over here. So it's been very uh, interesting learning the the lemon and wine business over the last few years. And and with the lemons, it's been fun for me too, because there's a lot of experimenting there. Not a lot has been done, you know, with uh, lemon orchards over the past 30 years. They pretty much all look the same. They pretty much do the same thing. So I'm looking at, you know, two-dimensional trees and literally putting trees on wires and trellising and these kinds of things like you do in a vineyard because I know the vineyard world pretty well and I thought well why don't we do the same thing with the lemons you know make it so we can harvest easier more efficiently and that kind of thing so it's been a lot of fun to just have those as uh, side projects to learn more different techniques. Well uh, one I want you to give you a chance to put in a plug for your label because I love the label what's the name of your uh, the winery uh, is uh, Twisted Roots Winery. All right. Very thank good. You, I, I, I like that. <laughs> and then just for grin, since we have you, uh, you know, I had a chance. Uh, it's been a little over a year now to visit a new uh, packing house for uh, Sunkissed Lemons, and it was huge. What are the market opportunities around lemons? I, I know the obvious that uh, for iced tea and that sort of thing, but where are the opportunities? I mean, is it fundamentally a food service item, whether it's at home or uh, at, at a restaurant? Yeah, lemons are they're, uh, they're condiments like salt and pepper, ketchup. I mean, because you use them on everything, you're not consuming them like an orange. It's primarily a food service item. And that, But there's a lot of opportunity in the juice and oil markets. Lemons are very utilized quite a bit in, in the oil and juice, which is maybe not economically the best, but there's a lot of opportunity there, I think, in that space. So it's, it's well, I eat a lot of broccoli and I keep forgetting to buy lemons for my broccoli. So I'll have to do that. That's it. You got to combine the two. There you go. That sounds good. But to pick up on, and I like that you went right to, and I play around with different sorts of things from an orchard design, trellis, et cetera. What's your general take as you look at automation? Has there been enough activity either yet or slow to the mark or just economically not feasible? Just like you made some changes in terms of farming practices with broccoli, I'm not necessarily seen a wholesale change in, you know, in other items, you know, obviously strawberries are taking a look at a lot, whether it's tabletop controlled atmosphere, that sort of thing. So certainly that's a very, for lack of a better word, progressive group, you know, that's an industry that's willing to look at a lot of different things. Are there other commodities that you think probably ought to be a little more aggressive or adventurous, whatever the right word might be, if they're going to get to better addressing the labor issues? 
Yeah, no, I think everything here in, in the Salinas Valley, to be quite frank, and and this might be a strong statement, but I'll make it anyways. I, I, I've said it out loud in public. If Salinas Valley specifically, when it comes to vegetables, if we don't start looking at all the crops this way, my fear is we're going to lose a lot of them to Mexico or other areas of the country, but most likely Mexico. And I don't want to see that happen. As a guy who was born and raised here, lives here, I love this valley. I want to see agriculture succeed in this valley. And I hate to see every year more and more crops are headed to Mexico. So yeah, to your point, everything needs to be looked at. In my mind, there shouldn't be one crop that we grow here in the vegetable deal that shouldn't be turned upside down if we want to keep it here. Not only keep it here because we want to make it economically viable, but keep it here because we've built a plant that can resist INSV and these diseases and other things that the Valley has. So we got to look at everything. The interesting sidebar to that is, you know, some of the challenges in the Salinas Valley are, you know, broader discussions geographically. But one of the ones I really want to kind of drill down on a little bit is, you know, you just talked about INSV and, you know, we occasionally mention it on the podcast, but can you kind of drill down on a little bit? What is that? And where are we? And I found it interesting, just, to, you know, one last quick sidebar, you know, we've got a big contingent coming from New Zealand for our biological summit, and they were actually doing a webinar on thrips down there as well. So I'm guessing it's not unique to the Salinas Valley, but it's sure taken its toll. So what is it and where are we and how's the outlook? Yeah, so INSV is a virus that has existed around here for a while, but recently in the last three or four years, it just all of a sudden took off for some reason. And uh, quite frankly, three years ago or so, I was the epicenter, or at least it felt like I was the epicenter of the entire valley when it came to INSV. I lost millions and millions of dollars of crops at that time because of INSV. So it's a virus that exists somewhere in the valley. We don't always know where it exists. And that's the problem. We don't really know where it's at because sometimes it can infect a plant and the plant could be asymptomatic and you don't know it has the virus. But then the, the Western flower thrip comes through. Once it pierces that plant, it ingests some of the virus and then it goes on to the lettuce or the romaine and again, pierces the plant and puts the virus into the plant and ultimately the plant dies. And as of today, there is no cure for it. There is no preventative for it. Because it's a virus vectored by thrip, your only hope is to attack the thrip. But anybody who's been in Salinas Valley in the summertime after 12 o'clock knows that the winds are blowing right down the valley and the little thrip or millions of them are flying down the valley with them. So today you spray all the thrip. Well, there's going to be a whole other batch of thrip coming through tomorrow. And so it's really, really challenging right now in the valley in the late summer to fall to control this virus because the vector is so prevalent, thrips. And I think, again, this is what, you know, started me down this path three years ago, four years ago. I believe, or, or at least let me ask the question, why can't we build a plant that's strong enough to resist the sting of the thrip, build the cuticle up so thick on the leaf that it cannot sting through to the cells and therefore it cannot infect the plant with the virus? And we haven't gotten there yet, of course, but I think that's where we need to go. And that's where the industry is kind of headed, genetics and, you know, how to build a healthier plant to resist it because it really is a huge problem in this valley. And you're right. That sounds like genetics may be a good place to start and see if it can be part of the solution. Well, you know, we had a chance to visit on a social occasion last night and you were talking to a gentleman from uh, Belgium and he was talking about this idea of plant health and listening to the plants and how technology is going to help do that. And that just seems to me to be 
I mean, just a completely new frontier in terms of tools and and that type of thing. But, you know, I, I mean, my sense is people are, obviously they talk about healthy soils and inputs. Is, is this issue of the plants as a living organism, is that going to be a new phenomena that we're all going to look at a little more closely and, and seriously? I mean, and obviously genetics would be part of it, but, you know, inputs and soil and that type of thing. I mean, where are we headed with all that? I think that's exactly right. And I wish I could take credit for this analogy. It's not my, I didn't come up with this. Matter of fact, I heard it on another podcast. I won't say which one, but uh, they, they equated the ag business to the medical business. You know, way back in the early 1900s, you had an infection in your leg. We just cut your leg off. Sorry, that's it. Well, fast forward to the middle of the century, you got an infection in your toe. Well, we just took your toe off, but we saved your leg. And now we're getting to the point of, well, how do we make sure you're, you don't get the infection to begin with, right? You're doing blood work and all these things. And I think the ag business is, just in that same transition to the third period, if you will, of we know how to treat plants, we know how to spray for weeds and bugs and, and things like that, but how do we get to the next level and do the blood work, which is the testing of the soil and the um, the leaves, sap testing, whatever you want to call it, water, all that kind of stuff. So as I mentioned earlier, I really do think that's the next frontier. Find out what the plant has and, and what it needs. Right. And one of the things that really occurs to me is, you know, as you know, growers work with PCAs or their dealers and that type of thing as, you know, really a partner in terms of, okay, if this is the problem, try this, how much it, et cetera. You know, a lot of this, obviously, the growers are going to have to be thinking a little bit about continuing education for lack of a better phrase. But, you know, PCAs, they, I mean, they do have a continuing education network. I mean, who really steps up to be the grower's partner to deal with all this? You know, is there going to be a new breed of PCAs? Uh, because this is going to be a lot of information to take in along with new technology. Yeah, no, I agree. And to Candace's point earlier about are there services out there to help do this? And so far, the labs that I'm working with and their pathologists and their agronomists, if, and, you know, their scientists, they're the ones so far that I've found who are diving into it right now and, and trying to gain that knowledge. You know, I asked that question this morning of the lab. I said, so do you know what the perfect model for celery is in terms of balance of nutrients and ions and all of that? And they said, no, but we're going to put our scientists on it and they're going to go learn and they're going to go study and research it. So I'm for sure am not going to be that guy, but they are. And I think that's where those services are really going to come into play. They're going to dive into the details and the models and the research that's been done and try to come up with that perfect balance. It's interesting because there seems to be so many more players along the way that are needed. You know, like you have the R&D groups that are working on the biologicals and maybe doing some trials. And then you have all the support functions that help analyze the data and see if the, the biologicals are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then you have this trial and commercialization piece of things. So it feels like there's just maybe instead of being one provider, there's a lot of emerging opportunities from different players involved in this, solving this problem. Yeah. And I think it's going to take a group effort. It's going to take a whole bunch of different mindsets, backgrounds, you know, education, whatever you want to call it. And I think that goes for technology and ag in general. You know, the worker that used to drive the tractor 10 years ago is going to be totally different than the worker who drives it 10 years from now. And we have to assume all the supporting industries are going to be the same. You Now you need a lab full of genetic uh, scientists and pathological, you know, whatever. You need scientists of all different realms. And 
I'm just a broccoli farmer. I, that's not my world. I just know I have a problem and I need questions answered. And those people are the ones who are going to do it for us. I really believe that. I don't want to interrupt this topic, but I am also curious to go back to data. I'm curious if your perspectives around data ownership and how the mindset of the grower may have maybe changing over the last five years, or again, how big is this hurdle of like growers don't really like sharing data and, you know, the collective data set is more powerful than that of just one unique grower. How is that conversation evolving? Yeah, that's an interesting conversation. So take INSV as a good example. I was part of the initial task force that when the INSV blew up and we just gathered a a bunch of people in a room and said, look, we need to work on something because it's that big of a problem. And immediately the responses were, I don't want to share my data with anybody, including you in this group. And that was a private group in a private room where nobody was really going to be noticing. But yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a big challenge. You're absolutely right. Growers, by and large, don't like to share their data. And I also agree, by and large, collective data is much more valuable. That doesn't mean that a grower shouldn't be collecting data of their own ranch and their own farm and analyzing them, you know, doing their own analytics on their own farm. They still need to do that. But if we could collect some of this data, we could move forward on problems much faster. And so stubborn, so stubborn (laughs) the growers are. Okay, here's my next question. Is there truly that much of a competitive advantage? It seems to me that like there's so much chatter. For the most part, the tools are the tools available to everybody. And everybody's always like, "Hmm, I wonder what he's doing on his field. And oh, that looks like a nice tractor, you know, whatever it is. Is it really that different? No. And there's no secrets in this valley. We all pretend like there is, but there really is no secrets. I'll go back to my broccoli harvester. So after we went through four prototypes and we finally settled on the final broccoli harvester, I had it built by a custom manufacturer in Canada, brought it down here. And before I even ran that machine one day, the first thing I did with it was take it to a show and put it on display. And everybody told me, you're crazy. You just built this. This is your proprietary thing. Why would you put it on display? And for me, it's because I truly in my heart of hearts believe We're all in this together. And if somebody could take that design and make it better and leapfrog me, great. I win. The industry wins. We all win. And I don't believe there's any secrets. Nobody's really got that much of a competitive advantage. We're all the same. We just like to think that this side of the fence where I'm at is better than that side of the fence. And it's a silly mentality because it prevents the industry from moving forward. And for a guy like me, truly, that's what I want to see is I want the industry to be better off when I leave this industry than when I started. And I hope that others start coming along with that mentality. And just to build on what you said, I really, really liked the point. There are benefits in looking at things at the macro level. So everybody's combined data can do something to advance a, the conversation forward and hopefully fast track a solution. And that doesn't mean that you can't also be analyzing things on a much smaller scale on what applies to your farm, the varieties that you're growing, how you want to manage your own operations. So It's not either or, it's both. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you're not doing your own farm, that's just step one. Step two is let's collectively go forward now and make a better machine or process or whatever. I agree. Right. Right. Josh, as we finish up a couple of things, the first is anything uh, new on the horizon uh, that you're seeing uh, and, you know, you, you look at everything and I know the door gets knocked on a lot. You know, I'm one of the knockers. But anything new or despite everything you've seen, just I still have this huge problem that I can't solve. And it is what? 
fill in the blank, you know, what's the problem? Or are we just kind of in a period of maturation and before we kind of take those leaps forwards with genetics and AI? Where are we and what's on the horizon? Yeah, to answer your question, it depends on what segment you're looking at. There's a lot of exciting new things coming out and, you know, it just depends again which segment you're looking at, but variable rate fertilizer applications based on drone imagery is I personally, I'm really excited about that. Drone spraying, I've done some of it. I'm excited about it. The biological space, you know, so I guess it just depends on which space you're talking about. I think there's a lot of great things out there. A lot of great companies are doing, uh, uh, providing a lot of new and innovative ways of handling things. So it's across the board. Yeah, for sure. And we're kind of in a weird period where we're making progress, it feels like to me, and we're moving, but then we also kind of get a little stagnant, you know, weeding and thinning became a big thing. And now it's, you know, it's there. We're, we're doing it. It's great. It's a solution. But the fire kind of left that camp. And I'm not quite sure where that fire is going to go as an industry to the next, what the next thing that we're going to light a fire on. But I'm excited about a lot of different things. A lot of what we talked about today. Artificial intelligence. You know, Josh, if you listen to this podcast, I'm really, I'm into <laughs> robots. I'm into AI. So I'm hoping that this is also in the mix of what you're working on on the farm. AI is interesting, and I'm not going to lie. I'm a little afraid of it personally, but it's intriguing and scary at the same time. I've been fooling around with some AI stuff myself, and yeah, I think there's a place for it, but it's uh, it's interesting. That's a whole new category. I don't think AI is going to, well, I don't know what it's going to do. That's the thing. I don't know yet. So yeah. <laughs> That's the thing, know. Josh. It's terrifying. I completely agree. Okay. But let's just assume that like for the next three years, it's really friendly. Nobody's coming after humanity. We just have yeah. these great new tools. And plus, did you know that AI can build your slides for you? Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> I AI, AI built me a bot the other day and I didn't even know what a bot was. See that? Progress. <laughs> this is great. You just got more time to work on at your winery. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. Well, and if depending upon the direction AI goes, you may be drinking your own profits on the winery. Yeah. So, yeah. well, let's finish with this. I told you we'd have a little fun. We'll put you on the spot. You know, you talked about being a regular listener in a particular episode we had, and you were yelling at the radio, ask this, ask that. And uh, so we're going to give you a chance to uh, be a podcaster. What didn't we ask you that we should have? And, uh, you know, kind of a final message you want to impart. And then a little advice as we go, as Candace and I go down the road. Now, you guys make sure you focus on. No, no, you guys are doing a wonderful job. I mean that sincerely. Well, I, I wasn't fishing for a compliment. I, no, I, I know. I, yes. I enjoy your podcast. Your podcasts are great. Your guests are great. I think the one in particular, I was down in Oxnard. It happened to be the latest one that you have published talking about biologicals and one of your guest speakers that's going to be at the conference. And he was talking about, you know, biologicals and and again, from his perspective and his experience and all of that. But I, I, there were so many questions I wanted to ask about his experience and his knowledge, not because I think he's wrong on anything. It's just that he has a set of knowledge and information that I want to ask questions and learn from. He's the type of person that we need more of here so that they can help us learn. That was more my thing. I was literally driving through the fields of Oxnard yelling at the radio, like, I need this question answered. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll be here in person in a couple of weeks, so we'll make sure you get a chance. But, you know, it's interesting and kind of closing with this, you know, one of our guests, Brent Shedd uh, from the CEO of Stout several weeks ago, he talked about from his, because he's an AI guy. 
And he talked about, you know, at some level, the Salinas Valley, just that was kind of the immediate valley he was thinking of, but it's obviously a metaphor for the industry. And the Silicon Valley still really have yet to get together, you know? And, and so I think one of the big questions, particularly is the a sense of urgency kind of, you know, continues to unfold on various challenges we have, you know, how do we get that done? What are the players? What are the services? You know, this idea of, uh, you know, continuing education. I mean, there's going to be a lot going on, you know, that idea of, uh, you know, I don't want to change. Uh, and most growers I know are happy, you know, hey, show me a better way and off they go. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, folks are really going to have to be prepared to just recognize a lot of change is coming and it sounds like it's coming quicker. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I've said this before, but we need to find a way to make this valley, this industry sexy to the people up in Silicon Valley. I mean, right now, there's it feels like a Grand Canyon between us and Silicon Valley, and we're an hour apart. And I think it's just we just we're not attractive enough, especially, you know, when you're talking about the Googles and the apples of the world up there. Those are pretty attractive jobs. And to get those people to come down here and dive head first into the ag deals is pretty tough, but it's needed. It truly is. All right. Candace, anything uh, for Josh? We've had a good visit, as I expected we would. No, but you know that I love controversy. I feel like, Josh, you just ended on this like Grand Canyon between Salinas and Silicon Valley. Dennis, that sounds like a great episode to me. It does. We'll have, well, you, you know what? We'll have to see if we can uh, get to Sand Hill Boulevard and say, hey, what's the deal here, folks? Uh, <laughs> how come you're not paying more, more, more attention? Uh, even, even though there's a good group looking to invest in, and make things happen, but it sounds like Josh is uh, suggesting we uh, need to broaden the base. Yes. So, yes. Josh, thanks for your time. You Thank know, you both. I appreciate it's your time. It's a Friday afternoon, so that's a good time for a nice glass of Twisted Root. And uh, <laughs> Josh, thank you so much for joining us. It was really great to see you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I would like to invite all of our Voices of the Valley listeners to both like and subscribe to your favorite Ag Tech podcast. And we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast. Brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit reedleycollege.edu.